Okay, so last night, just for fun, and I waited till last night because I, I wanted to have to be honest with it. I didn't want to be able to kind of like pick the perfect night for this little um, object lesson. But so last night, uh, I Googled the word news. The very first option was Google News. And so I clicked on that, and here were our headlines. Um, ABC News suspends Brian Ross over serious error in Flynn report. GOP tax plan is class warfare. Authorities find the body of a missing three-year-old girl. Stanford sex offender Brock Turner is appealing his conviction. McAllister says potential war with North Korea increasing daily. Trump campaign reveals Big Macs, screaming fits, and constant rivalries. North Korea's new ICBM likely broke up on reentry, says hopeful U.S. official. Greek Orthodox Church sells land in Israel, raising anxiety of both Israelis and Palestinians. Yemen's rebels, uh, rebel alliance appears to fracture as clash leaves dozens dead. Israel strikes military site near Damascus. Alabama race neck and neck with voters divided over Roy Moore. And Caitlin Frizina, missing Florida girl, found in New York City to be reunited with her family. I was going to stop there because I thought that was the first piece of good news. I was just looking for the first piece of good news. She was hiding out with her um, coach. Yeah, her, she was 17. He was 27. They were hiding out living together in New York. So I kept going. <laughs> Another Democrat faces calls to resign over sexual harassment allegations. And then finally, I hit Waffle House customer makes his own meal while employee sleeps. And I just counted that as good. I, I'll take it. In that list, I will take that as good news. And this is the world we live in. So I want you to think about that. It took me 14 headlines just to get to that piece of news that wasn't either terribly frightening or just downright evil. So I want you to keep that in mind as we read our passage for tonight. Go ahead. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are like an unclean thing, we all, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all we are the, are the work of your hands. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. 
That's our lectionary reading today. So that's the reading that they assign us as week one of Advent for this year. And the thing I love about it is um, it's very real. It's very gritty. This isn't like Christmas, like the Christmas movie Christmas. This is Advent, which is different. And Advent is about waiting. Go ahead. The word Advent is actually from the Latin word to wait. And, it, uh, and it's an ancient Jewish practice. This is part of um, kind of the heritage we came from. Um, the Jews were awaiting people. Um, in fact, uh, uh, Rabbi um, Maimon in the uh, Miamides, um, which is, he compiled the 13 essential um, beliefs to be a Jew, um, which is known as kind of the bare essentials that a Jew would believe um, to call himself a Jew. <clears throat> um, part of the, on, in that list is uh, they have this belief in the Messiah, this uh, um, hope, what they call the hope for the Messiah. And it's part of the, uh, uh, the Shimon uh, Ezra, I think it's per, is how it's pronounced, which is this kind of central prayer in most Jewish um, ceremonies, the prayer for the Messiah. Um, and they are also supposed to find three times a day to pray this. And, uh, and it goes like this. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pray it in Hebrew. Um, my Hebrew is terrible. <laughs> I don't know any Hebrew. Um, but it says, we pray for all the elements of the coming Messiah, the ingathering of the exiles, the restoration of the religious courts of justice, and the end of wickedness, sin, and heresy, Reward for the righteous, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the restoration of David's line, and the restoration of the temple. The Jews were waiting for this, and they're supposed to kind of, on a regular basis, keep this, this waiting feeling alive. They pray for this on a regular basis, that, uh, that, the, that the, the Messiah would come, and they're constantly waiting for the Messiah to come. This is important to us because it reminds us that the Christmas story is a Jewish story. It's an answer to a, to a Jewish waiting, to this concept that the Jews had deep in their heart um, that, that they were waiting for, that they were constantly expecting every single day. And this is why when we read the story, Zechariah and Elizabeth and um, kind of the old people of the temple and Mary and just everybody was, um, was so blown away by this moment uh, is because, and it's also why... Um, when you read it, you, don't, you see the, the shock and the excitement, but if, if we were out in a field and the sky opened up and the angels, you know, parted, you know, we would freak out. We would, like, we would have absolutely no idea what to do at that moment. And to them, it didn't quite hit them that way because this was something, in a sense, they had always been waiting for. This is something they prayed for daily. And so when it starts to happen... Yes, they're excited. Yes, they're like, I mean, the one guy's like, I can die now. Just let me die because this is all I've waited for my whole life. And, and so this is like a huge expectation for them. And the Christmas story kind of jumps into this like a light and darkness. And it actually took the church a while to kind of grab onto that. Um, you can go to the next part. Um, Advent um, started in the 4th and 5th centuries, and it had absolutely nothing to do with Christmas um, at all. In January, they celebrate the baptism of Jesus, um, that story. They kind of get around to that story in January. And so um, the period before that that they called Advent was this fasting time 
that new converts would go through to prepare themselves to be baptized. And so they kind of went through this preparatory time before baptism because they try to do baptisms annually on the, on the day that they celebrated the Lord's baptism. And so you would go through your catechisms, you'd learn what you were supposed to learn, and then you went through this kind of fasting preparatory time that they called Advent. They said you were waiting on the Lord. You're waiting for the Lord to reveal himself to you so that you can be baptized. And then by the 6th century, they started um, kind of tying in this um, expectation for the Lord's coming, for the Lord to come uh, again, and for him to come and fix what is broken, and for him to come and restore the world to where it was originally supposed to be. And they found themselves, as they were kind of tapping into this, this waiting and this expectancy, finding hope in the Christmas story. Because when people would go like, man, it's, he's been gone forever. He's never coming back. They would say, that's what Israel thought. And then he came. And then he came. So they were finding the Christmas story as this almost this like this, this hope that God doesn't leave us alone in the darkness. He doesn't leave us in the brokenness. He does show up. He does arrive. And so they started tying the Christmas story into what was already um, kind of this existent um, theme of Advent. And they started noticing that as we talk about Jesus coming back, it's almost impossible to do that without talking about the last time he came. And that those two things are kind of weirdly connected. And so Advent became this season which we look backwards in one direction and forward at the same time. It's, it's kind of a tension. We're talking about what happened and what's going to happen. And those two things are always related. They're always connected. And so Advent becomes this, uh, uh, this season by which we hope. And that was actually the first thing um, they tacked to it was the idea of hope, Advent as hope. And this is week one. Um, actually, the one candle we light during Advent is called the hope candle. Um, we'll, we'll light a different candle each night and, uh, or each week. Um, and week one is hope. And so tonight we lit the hope candle. And hope is this awesome thing. It's this um, psychologists have kind of figured out that hope is kind of an, ex, an essential condition for the human um, thriving. For us to do well psychologically, we have to have hope. Um, and they've actually done a lot of studies on it. This guy, C.R. Snyder, who um, is kind of the guru of hope, if you want to call it that, like I've done the majority of studies on hope and has written several books on it, has a thing that he calls hope theory. Um, and, and they break down kind of the essential elements for us to feel hope, for us to have hope. And it's kind of interesting what they are, because there has to be a goal first, that we have to have something we're hoping toward, and it has to be valuable and uncertain. If it's a guarantee, if it's like, boy, I just hope there's going to be dinner tonight, and you know, you know there's going to be dinner tonight, then it's not real hope. You don't really feel the, the real sense of hope. So it has to be uncertain, and it has to be valuable. It has to have a certain value to it for it to actually inspire hope. There has to be an imaginable pathway to it. So if you're hoping you're going to you know, wake up tomorrow and there's going to be a Lamborghini in your driveway, that's not going to spawn real hope, what we consider to be real hope. That's... You know, that's maybe pie in the sky or daydreaming, but real hope has to have an imaginable pathway. So it has to be valuable and, um, and uncertain, but it also has to have a, an imaginable path by which we can get there. Um, there also has to be a motivation, an incentive. There has to be something that makes us uh, want it. There has to be a real desire for it. Um, otherwise, it's not hope. So, I mean, if you're, that's why we don't, 
you know, hope for bad things to happen because um, there has to be this kind of inner motivation. And then there has to be barriers. That's the most interesting one. There has to be challenges to your hope or otherwise it doesn't, um, hope just kind of dies if it's this thing that doesn't ever get challenged. Um, and this is where uh, Snyder got the most kind of pushback from other people. But his studies have kind of borne it out that, that in order for hope to really get built up, it has to get knocked down every once in a while. And, and then our response to that seems to be to hope even more. Seems to be that, that uh, when hope is challenged, when there's a barrier, uh, it actually grows. Um, so it seems to me that the Bible kind of figured some of this out long before Snyder did. You can go to the next slide. Um, like in Lamentations, it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Go ahead. For the next one in uh, Romans, it says, For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for something that he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I love when psychology spends a bunch of money to prove what the Bible said a long time ago. Um, Let's go to the next one. So Advent hope is a special kind of hope. This is um, the reason that we focus on hope during Advent is because Advent hope is a fully informed hope. It is not pie in the sky hope. It's not like, man, I really hope I get that, uh, that, you know, new car, blah, blah, blah. It's not daydreaming, like wishful thinking hope. Advent is a fully informed, like blinders off, uh, full awareness hope. It's, it's basically like saying, man, this world is completely broken and disgusting and, and falling apart. And I can't wait for Jesus to set it right. Like it's a, it's a fully looking at the world the way it is. And rather than getting hopeless, allowing that to foster in us real hope. So let's go back to our passage that we started with. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains should shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did the, those things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, man has not heard or perceived by the ear, nor has seen the eye any God beside you who acts for one who waits for him. Can you guys feel the hope in that? That, that? that they're looking at what he's done in the past. And they're like, God, that you would come again, that you would, that you would reveal yourself again the way you used to. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are like unclean things. This is owning the brokenness. This is owning the real condition of the world. And all our righteousness is as filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like wind have taken us away. There's no, no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up, to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter and all and all we are the work of your hands. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. During Advent, we face the darkness. We don't run from it. That's what make, makes Advent different. We don't bury it in Christmas music and lights. We don't like numb it with shopping and spending money. 
You can go to the next page. Oh, no, you're there. Um, not that any of these things are bad or not that they're, they're evil. But in, in Advent, we look at the world the way it really is. We look at what's broken. We read the news and we own the fact that it takes 14 articles to get down to something that's not completely gross. And there's just one caveat to all that, to that, to, to taking off the blinders and looking, and that's that we hope. We don't despair. That's what makes Advent beautiful, is we, we own the world the, the way it is, and we let it spawn, like spawn this belief that Jesus can make things better, that he can make things right, and that that's what he's for. So how do we respond to this? to this Advent hope. A couple things. First, you can go to the next one. This one little part of the passage. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like unclean things. All our righteousness is as filthy rags and we all fade as a leaf. And all our iniquities like wind have taken us away. There is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. This is a major issue in our world today. None of us do this very well. None of us own the brokenness. We're really good at blaming the other side. We're really good at taking a tragedy and turning it into a political debate. At at taking something evil and saying, yeah, well, those guys, if they would just change things, we wouldn't be in this terrible state. Like we're awesome at blaming, but in Advent we don't do that. In Advent we own it. In Advent like this thing, like this guy doesn't say, you know, the world is completely falling apart and it's the Ninevites' fault, you know. He says, we have sinned. We have done this. We have broken things. As I was studying this, I was, I was kind of reminded I had to go digging for it. A pastor friend of mine named Jared and Lawrence. The day after the Vegas shooting... Um, wrote this, and it really stuck in my head. He said, Today I cleaned my garage. I know it seems trite, but I had to. I spent a few minutes trying to talk to God about the people shot on our church block Saturday night, and I tried to talk to him about Las Vegas. But all I could say is, I am so sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry that I'm, self, I'm a selfish, crappy sinner at times. I'm sorry that I and humanity have, ruin, have ruined your beautiful world. That was all I could do because grief is like that. Grief is like a melody. You'll ruin it if you try to dissect it. You're just supposed to let it work on you. Many things need to change. I'm particularly focused on seeing hearts changed. So I'm going to continue to make disciples of Jesus or to Jesus and keep begging others to do the same. I read another post by a friend who did almost the same thing. And I was, I was just, uh, they jumped out at me because my Facebook page that day was overwhelmed with political debates about who should own guns and who shouldn't own guns and if these people, how many more times are we going to let this happen, blah, blah, blah. And I loved that there was somebody saying, God, 
I'm sorry for my part in this mess. I'm sorry that we've let it become this, that, that our hatred for one another and that our, just our mean-spiritedness has allowed the world to turn into this. And that, that darkness is what gives life to Advent hope. That recognizing that things are broken, recognizing that things are bad. Because if we don't, if we get real comfortable here, if we allow ourselves to be like, to feel like this is home, like this is, everything is good and the life is great, then we stop looking forward to Jesus' coming. We stop hoping for something better. And only when we own how gross things are do we continue to hope for that day when things are better. So the way we respond to this is first we own it. We own our part in it. We own um, we own what we've done. And the second thing we do is we hope. And we give our hope shape. We give it words. We, we find something to wrap around it. You can go to the next one. We don't just hope in a vague way. We give it language. And so we ask this question, what are you waiting for? I don't mean that in terms of, why aren't you moving? What are you waiting for? I mean, what are, what are you hoping for? What's broken that you want to see made better? What are you waiting for? What are you adventing for this season? Is it racial equality? That men would treat women better? That there'd be an end to abortion? That equal pay would get equal work? Is it the end to pain in your body? More equitable distribution of wealth between labor and executives? Is it an end to war? An end to having to say goodbye to loved ones? An end to socioeconomic oppression? An end to child abuse? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. What are you waiting for this season? As we go to the table tonight, give that a voice. Like, name that thing. I can't wait until this situation isn't like this anymore. That's what I'm waiting for. That's why I want to see Jesus move. That's why I want to see him come. Because we, we tend to fall into vagaries. Lord Jesus, come. And we have no idea what that means. We have no idea what we're asking for, really. We just want, want more of your presence. We don't really know what that looks like or what that means other than a feeling or some emotional response. Advent about it is about giving language to that. What are you waiting for? What do you want to see? What would make the world better in your mind? What would make things more fair? This is something we try to talk to our kids about, and it's hard because our kids, you know, kids will do this. It's not fair thing. And we try to tell them, you know, number one, the world is not fair. So you're just going to have to get used to that right now. But at the same time, that thing in you that just did that, that that feeling in you that just said it's not fair that's advent in your heart saying what is broken something's broken in this world it's not the way it should be and so even though you want to own that the world's not fair you also don't want to quiet that voice 
because that voice is what cries out for Jesus to come. I want a world that's fair. I want a world where other kids don't take my toys. That's Advent, that feeling. Our kids have it. Our kids have it early. Our kids recognize injustice very quickly. The second someone else snatches something or the second their sibling gets the bigger piece of cake or the bigger piece of candy bar, that sense of injustice just wells up. This world's not fair. And they're right, it's not. And that's why we wait. That's what we're waiting for. So as we go to the table tonight, take a second. As we sing this last song and as we worship together, take a second and give voice to what you're waiting for. And you don't have to capture the whole thing. You don't have to picture all the unbrokenness, all the unbrokenness or all the brokenness in the world, everything that's not right. But find something. Find something to wait for this Advent season. Something to hold on to and say, I cannot wait for Jesus to come back and fix this. Because that's what Advent does. It waits. Jesus went to the cross to... um, to show us that he doesn't leave us in darkness, to prove um, that he's not aloof, that he's not far away. So that when, um, when we wait, when we come to the Advent season and we wait for him, we have something to look back at and say, he will not leave us in darkness. He who gave his own body and poured out his own blood will not leave us in darkness forever we can wait and trust that he's going to come and make things better. So on the night uh, of his arrest,